The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. The gospel card that you have, the laminated card, starts with four eyes, introduction, in, interest, involvement, and inquiry. That is taken straight out of the faith um, presentation of the gospel that some have done. Uh, I think it's a good way to begin a gospel conversation. You know, introduce yourself, um, just talk to them about their interests in life, uh, and then get a little closer to the heart of the matter. Uh, ask them about their involvement spiritually, where they go to church or if they go to church, what was their spiritual background, those kind of things. And then the inquiry has to do with... Um, here, Jim, this is a gospel outline. Maybe you guys could, if you wouldn't mind, just keeping the whole stack near the door. And if anybody comes in, you could get it to them. Thanks. Um, but having gotten into the gospel conversation, what are you going to say? Do you know what the gospel is? And I know you must, um, but sometimes it helps to have a succinct outline. I think the four-part outline here which certainly is not original with me. Don't, don't ever think that. It really is just very common. At least it was very common in gospel tracts to follow this basic four-part outline. Not every gospel tract used the four-part outline, but many did. The four spiritual laws did in general. Navigators tracts did. The Billy Graham steps to peace with God generally followed this approach. Nowadays, we've gotten more into a kind of a storytelling approach in which people get to share their life story and you get to kind of mix the Bible's my story with yours and all that, and that makes me a little leery. I think we've got, to, we've got to stick to the facts of the gospel as they're presented. So much of the gospel communication is, this is how it is. This is the truth. And there's no getting away from that. We are telling people what is true. I found it interesting as I was listening to a tape by John Piper on Romans 8. He, he brought something up on Romans 8 that I'd never noticed before. It's not true of every chapter in Romans, but it is true of Romans 8, and that's that there are no commands in Romans 8. None. It's just a series of statements of things that are true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's just a statement of fact. And just one fact after another flows in Romans 8 into a marvelous presentation of truth. Now, I think we know that behind it there's a there's a strong urgency to act a certain way, like those who are led by the Spirit of God put sin to death. You know, if, you are, if you're uh, led by the Spirit of God, you're going to be putting sin to death by the Spirit. Well, if that's true, then put to sin to death by the Spirit. I think it's implied that there's some commands. What am I saying? I'm saying that the series of truths that are on these pages, um, that's the gospel. It's a body of doctrines. And then people could say, well, then are you indoctrinating people? Well, yes, but it's only recently that we've come to reject that word. It's so authoritative. We are communicating doctrines to people. We're basically saying this is how it is. Now, I think the four-part outline is helpful. God, man, Christ, response. If you keep that in mind, even if you don't remember all the sub-points here, that's, I think, a great way to share the gospel. Let's start with God. Now, why is it good to start with God? Why is that a good starting place? Yeah, everything starts with God except the faith gospel presentation. That starts with forgiveness, which is an odd place to begin, I think. But many presentations these days do not begin with God. But the Scripture does. In the beginning, God. And I, to me, I feel that that's the best way to start. We have a ministry here with internationals. 
Um, we got to an interesting point as I was presenting the gospel and just talking about various things. And we had a different approach in that. I was meeting with PhDs and postdoctoral students at Duke. Met mo- all of them, I think, well, except one, all of them were Chinese. And they were coming from the background of, um, you know, being Chinese and whatever. And I was sharing with them C.S. Lewis's Lord, Liar, Lunatic Trilemma that with Jesus having claimed to be God, he leaves you with no choice. You have to decide either he is God in the flesh or he's insane or he's the biggest liar in the history of the world. You have to make a choice. And I think that's true. You really have to decide of the three. But what was interesting is um, the Chinese that were there, they said, well, we believe then it makes sense. He doesn't seem like a liar and he sure doesn't seem crazy. He must have been the Lord. He must have been God. The thing is, we don't know what that means. We don't know who God is. And I think that that's true. I think when you're raised in an atheistic communist state like that, uh, it's probably true that they don't know much about God. So therefore, it's very good for us to start with God. So let's start with God. And the beginning, I think, we're going to start with is God as Creator because that's the way the Bible starts. The book of Hebrews and the um, Gospel of John all start with God as Creator, don't they? Genesis 1, Hebrews 1, and... um, uh, John 1 all begin with God the Creator. So I think that Genesis 1.1 is a great place to start. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, the advantage is probably most of you have that verse memorized already. So the 16 or 20 or 46 more verses that follow, maybe not so free of charge. But this one you probably already know, Genesis 1.1. So when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, you just say, okay, we're going to start with God. The God that I am here to talk to you about, the God that we're communicating about, He created heaven and earth. He made the stars. He made the mountains. He made the rivers and the oceans. He made you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He created everything that we see. He created things that we can't see, spiritual things. He made it all. He made heaven and earth. So that's how we start. And that's universally true. Whether you're talking to somebody from China or somebody who's been raised in the church, you can begin there. God as Creator. Therefore... God is loving. Now, what do I mean by therefore? Well, the therefore comes from the experience we have of God's world, don't we? We can see evidence of God's love all around us. Uh, a very good example of this is Acts 14:17. This is uh, the Apostle Paul preaching in Athens. And he says, Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Now, what do you notice about that verse? What is, what is that verse talking about? What is the focus of that verse? What God has done, that God supplies everything. Okay. Common grace. That's right. We have, and that's a theological title, for the good things that God gives to people, whether they ever acknowledge Him or not. He gives many good things. If you stop and realize that we rebels, and we'll get to that later in the Gospel outline, we deserve nothing but wrath from God, any good thing we get, is better than we deserve, right? But God gives us lavishly. And He's actually very generous, not just with material things, but with time. He bears with great patience the objects of His wrath prepared for destruction, it says in Romans 9. He waits an awfully long time, doesn't He, for the sin of the Amorites to reach its full measure. Now, He doesn't owe them a single day, but He is very patient with people. So He gives them time. He gives them food. And again, this is a point of contact as you're there on the airplane witnessing to somebody you can just talk about the good things in life that we all enjoy and say God gave them all. Every good meal you've ever eaten, God gave it to you. Every beautiful sunset you've ever seen, it was God that made it. Um, Every relationship you've ever had, every person that you loved, every special memory you have, they come from God. 
God is the giver of all good things. So, God is the creator and therefore we see that God is loving. Secondly, God is king. Now, why do we want to talk about God as king? Why is that important in a gospel presentation? Okay, we want to run it. We want to be in charge. We're the king. Okay, that's a good point. That's right. And it does logically follow from God the Creator to God the King. Do you see that? If God made it all, He sure has the right to rule it all, doesn't He? I mean, it just makes sense. It's His world. And I tell you how much of a healthy correction this is for us in our sin. We are the center of our world. Also, remember how Jesus preached the Gospel. What did He say? Repent for the what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Are we not inviting them back into a kingdom? And by the way, about that word invite, I can't tell the difference between God's invitations and God's commands. Can you? I mean, is there a difference? When God invites you to come to the wedding banquet, isn't that a command? And if you decide to refuse the invitation, doesn't it act about the same as one of the commands of God that you break? I think it does. So, frankly, invitation is just a friendly word for a command. But at any rate, God is king. And I also tell you, if you preach the gospel this way and if you really mean it, and we'll get to it more and more. You'll see how it goes right through the gospel presentation. It will not be a, a hard thing for you to say, okay, now that you've yielded your life to Jesus the King, you need to walk in constant obedience to Him as King. You need to take His yoke upon you every day. You see that? But if you come at it with the approach, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, or you're just really overly focusing on God's love, they will not understand the need that they have to kneel to God the King. And they're going to have a problem, I think, with sanctification, with the ongoing life of discipleship. You understand what I'm saying? So let's just introduce it right at the start. God is a creator and God is king. Okay? Well, there's so many verses we could use, but I like this one, Psalm 47, 7. For God is king of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. It's a good verse, isn't it? God is king of all the earth. Is there anything that God doesn't rule over? No. He rules over everything. He even rules over rebels. He rules over everybody. He is king of all the earth. And also, because he's a king, we should be praising him. We get to that later on in the outline, but... You know, he, should, he, he deserves worship. He deserves to be honored. He's the king. Third point, uh, or sub-point of God the king. Therefore, God is sovereign. Sovereign. Uh, you know, that's an old word for king anyway, isn't it? Our sovereign, our king. Uh, it's the same thing. It just means he exercises his kingly right. Does he do that? Does God exercise a kingly authority over the world? Yeah, he does. Do we all acknowledge that? Do the nations acknowledge it? To the politicians and the leaders, they do not acknowledge. But whether they acknowledge him or not, he rules over them. Also, you see within the word sovereign, the word reign. Do you see that? God reigns. He's a king. Well, there's so many verses for this as well, but Psalm 103:19, The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Isn't that a great verse? Look at that. The Lord has established his throne and his kingdom rules over all. So here you are talking to a non-Christian about, a, about God who is the creator of all the earth, the heavens and the earth. He is also a king who rules. He's sovereign. You know, you're right into it, aren't you? Can you imagine the conversation you're having? Now, obviously, you're going to want to stop and talk with people. If, you, if you've got an hour and a half ride, plane ride from here to Ohio or, or Atlanta or some other thing, you know, connecting flight, you've got yourself some time. You know, don't just shove it down their throats or whatever, but say, well, what do you think about this? The fact that God, the Creator, has the right to rule over everything. Talk to me about that. I'll tell you what, it will not be dull. They will be interested in what, they're, what you're saying. He's established his throne. Now, second sub-point 
If God is the king, he also has the right to make laws by which his universe, his kingdom, is, is, is ruled, run. Doesn't he? Doesn't he have the right to make these laws? And not only does he have the right to make it, he has in fact done so. He's given us laws. He is a lawgiver. At this point, you want to share with them the Ten Commandments and the Two Commandments. I think, as the Puritans said, and I think they said it rightly, in order to bring someone to Christ, you have to do the law work in their lives. What do we mean by the law work? What kind of law work has to go on in the preaching of the gospel? That's right. Yeah, and the law is specially designed by God to do just that, isn't it? And I don't think you can do any better than the Ten Commandments and the Two Great Commandments. Those so-called Twelve Commandments, which really aren't twelve, but ten and then two summarizing commandments, um, will do the job if you know how to handle them rightly. All right, you can say, well, I don't know the Ten Commandments. Well, I've given you a kind of a quick outline here. You know, if you don't want to memorize Exodus 20, you could memorize kind of summary statements like this without too much difficulty. Commandment number one, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods besides me. So, no other gods. Commandment number two, you shall not make any idols or worship any idols. Commandment number three is, you shall, uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Commandment number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Do all your work in six days, rest on the seventh, for God created heavens and earth in six days, rest on the seventh. So, I'm, I'm actually going off a catechism that I memorized. To my shame, I didn't have the Ten Commandments memorized before doing catechism with my kids. But once I did, from then on, I have used the Ten Commandments in every extended gospel presentation I've ever done. Now, when I say extended, I mean I'm not talking about the waitress who's coming to give me the check and then she goes. You don't have time for that. You basically have time to hand her a tract or invite her to church. But I'm talking about a longer gospel invitation when you maybe have gone door to door and they're interested and you have all the time to talk, that, you know, maybe an hour or something like that. You've got to use the Ten Commandments, I think. You go right on down you know, through. Honor your father and mother. You know, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Man, if you can't find any conviction in there, well, you don't understand the law. Um, and if you need help, then just go to the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' enhancement of the Ten Commandments. For example, He picks two of them and says, you have heard that it was said you shall not murder. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother is in danger of the fire of hell. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And again, the threat of hell connected to that, you see? So when you get done with a thorough Ten Commandment work, they will probably say to you, well, who can be saved? Nobody's perfect. You did it. You got it. That's, that's, that's where you need to be. Yes, but you need to be perfect. We'll get to that in a minute. But absolutely, nobody's perfect. If the Ten Commandments don't do it, realize that many of them are negative. Many of them are negative. You shall have no other gods. You shall not make any idols. This kind of thing. Most of them are negative. Well, the two great commandments are positive. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And secondly, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, which of the two, the negatives or the positive, is it easier to get through unscathed in your own conscience? The negatives are easier. I mean, the rich young ruler did. He said, I've never murdered anybody, right? I've never, you know, he's able to get through. Oh, yes, but have you loved the Lord with every fiber of your being every day of your life? No. Okay, so those Ten Commandments and the Two Commandments, I think, will do the job. 
It'll bring somebody to realize. But realize at this point, all you're doing is just saying that God the King has given us these commandments. He expects us to live up to them. And secondly, also, when you are saved, guess what's going to happen with these ten and two? What is the Holy Spirit doing in your life anyway? Isn't He saying, here's the ten and two, live it? You know, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit? Does He say, okay, now you're saved. Forget about the Ten Commandments. Don't worry about those two great commandments. Don't trouble yourself about that. You're not under the law. Is that what He's saying? Is the Holy Spirit saying that to you? No, He's not saying that to me. Okay? So basically, this is what salvation ends up looking like. The Ten Commandments and the Two Commandments. All right, but we're still in just telling them who God is. All right, God is Creator. God is King. But also it makes sense that God's king, he also gets to be judge, right? He gets to decide how well you've done in obeying the law. So God is creator, God is king, God is judge, all right? Uh, many verses on this, but Psalm 96:13 is good. The Lord comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. That's a good verse, isn't it? God is coming and he will judge the world in righteousness. God will judge everyone on the, on the world, in the world. Now, we learned from John 5, a little more precisely, that all judgment has been committed to who? who? Who gets to do all the judging? Jesus, because He is the Son of Man. But still, He's God, and so He will come to judge the earth, or the Lord will come to judge the earth. All right, so here we go. God is the Creator. He made everything, heaven and earth. God is the King. He gives laws that are fully to be obeyed. And God is the Judge. He's going to assess the moral agents in His universe concerning the laws. Now, God as judge, He must be holy, and He is. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. That is a very powerful verse, isn't it? What, how would you use that in a gospel witnessing opportunity? Habakkuk 1.13. Of what use would that be as you're sharing the gospel with somebody? He can't even look at you. Wow, God can't even look at a sinful person. That's right. He cannot even look at you. How in the world is He going to spend eternity with you? And He can't. And you won't. If He does not clean you up. Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. He said that in John 13. Now, I think that means spiritually. It's got to mean spiritually. Because He didn't give him a physical bath that day. And He says, and you are clean. And later in John 15, He says, you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. But here's the point. If they are not transformed, if they are not cleansed, they cannot be with such a holy God. His eyes are too pure to look on evil. All right, so that's point one, God. God is the creator, therefore God is loving. God is the king, therefore he's sovereign. God is the lawgiver and he is holy. That's God. Is there more to say about God? Oh, infinitely so. But we're just trying to summarize, that's all. We want them to know the God who, who, with whom they have to do. Okay? Part two, man. What do we want to say about man? Well, first of all, we don't need to start with the negative. Let's start with the Bible starts. The Bible starts with us created in the image of God. We are created by God the Creator. Genesis 1.27 says so. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, when you say he's created, we are created in the image of God, I think what that means is that we're created to be like God. We're created to know and love God. And we're created to serve God. I just, you could just memorize those, that, that list if you want. If you want to find supporting verses for each of them, fine if the number of verses on, these, on this four-page outline isn't sufficient for you. Um, but you could support everything we say here with Scripture. 
We are created to be like Him. We're created to know Him and love Him. And we are created to serve Him. What we're doing when we're sharing the gospel like this, we're saying, this is what you're supposed to be. Are you? Are you loving Him? Are you like Him? Are you serving Him? Are you who you should be? And do you not see how this would provide an avenue for the Holy Spirit's conviction of a sinner, showing them how, how far they're falling short of what they were supposed to be? All right? So, man is created by God the Creator. Now, remember, we've got these three offices of God, so to speak. Creator, King, and Judge. All I did in the man section is just bring those three over and then just line us up against each We're created by God the Creator. We are rebellious against God the King. Do you see that? And that's what we want to say. We don't, we don't accept His rule. We want to rule ourselves. It's like the devil. He wanted to rule his self and we want to rule ourselves. And so, man is rebellious against God the King. And that means universally rebellious. When I mean universally, I mean there's no human being exempt Romans 3, 10 through 12, I think, is better than Romans 3.23. If you want to use Romans 3.23, you can't. But Romans 3, 10 through 12 just seems so precise about who it is we're talking about and leaves us no, no room to escape. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, how would you use those verses in sharing the gospel? What do most people think about themselves and their performance? I'm okay, you're okay, everybody's okay. Then why is the world not okay? Okay, I guess I'd want to ask. But, uh, Chris, what were you saying about about basic attitude that people have? Pretty good. I've lived a good life. I'm okay. Done more good than wrong. Yeah, done more good than wrong. What does this verse say to that? You haven't done any good, actually. It's not that you've done more good than wrong. It's that you have absolutely nothing to present on Judgment Day that God will accept as a good thing. Nothing. So it's amazing how people think they will present their good works to pay for their bad. That transaction itself has never been taught in Scripture and it's unacceptable. But even if it were, we'd all be going to hell. And why is that? It's not simply because our evil deeds have outweighed our bad. It's not simply so. It's worse than that. We don't have any good deeds. You see what I'm saying? It's not, it's not that we hope that our good deeds will outweigh our bad or in the end, you know, we had 51% bad and 49% good and therefore we go to hell. It's that we have 100% of our deeds that are unacceptable in God's holy sight. Yes? Good works. Yeah. Right. Right. So we have three flaws of my good deeds will pay for my sin. Number, flaw number one is that God never, never said that you could use good deeds to pay for bad. Never. Flaw number two is that, you know, and this is, I didn't mention this, but think about it. Your good deeds were expected. There's, you know how sometimes teachers give extra credit on a test and you can kind of use it to make up the difference? Maybe you could even get 108 on a test and if you did poorly on another. There's no possibility of getting 108 on any of God's tests. There's no extra credit. Can you say, hey, look, I did this good deed. Well, even if Romans 3 weren't true, it's like God says, at last, once you did what you were commanded to do. Could that possibly be used to pay for some transgression somewhere? 
No, it's just one time you did what you were commanded to do. So that's the second flaw. The third is you don't have any good deeds. None. So the whole transactional approach is flawed. Secondly, you know, the good deeds supposedly that you would do, they're expected anyway, if you could do them. <laughs> and third, you didn't do them. Not once. There's no pure deeds. The only one who's ever done pure deeds in God's sight was uh, Christ. All right, so universally rebellious. And we are rebellious against God's laws. Now, here, this is where I would bring the individual back personally, specifically to the Ten and Two Commandments. Say, talk to me, tell me. You know, if you understand Jesus' understanding of, of murder as having it root, its root in anger, have you ever been angry at somebody? I mean, really angry. Have you ever really been enraged at somebody? Or how about lust? Have you ever looked at a woman lustfully in your heart? Have you ever done that? God says you deserve hell for that. Now, you can see how the law works. And, and I would, if I would, I'd humbly put yourself under that too. Say, we do this. I've done that. So that they know you're not standing over them as holier than thou, but you're saying this is... I mean, Romans 3 just told him that you're also a sinner. There's no, no hiding. We're all under that. So, you, basically, you're saying, I've broken these Ten Commandments and I've broken the two. And even one transgression, God's eyes are too pure to look on evil. He cannot tolerate wrong. Okay? So, universally rebellious, rebellious specifically against God's laws. Therefore, we're under judgment by God the judge. You see, created by God the Creator, rebellious against God the King, and under judgment, therefore, by God the judge. Um, I, I love Matthew 12:36, And anybody who's heard me preach for any length of time, you probably heard this at least ten times from a sermon. Because I just think it's so poignant. Matthew 12:36. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. And now here's the thing. You, you're arguing from, from the, let's say, more surprising to the less surprising. If you have to give an account for every careless word, how much more all your actions and your deeds, all the things that you know right away are sinful in your life. You will give an account for everything. You will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word. And many times when I've shared that with people, they say, I don't remember all the things I've said. I'll say, that's all right. God remembers all of them. He's been keeping a record. The Bible says that there's a, there's a record book of all your deeds in heaven and you will have to give an account for everything on Judgment Day. What is Judgment Day? It's a day in which you'll give an account for everything you've done. Yes? Yeah. Basically, it's the, it's the king saying to the subject, what did you do? I mean, isn't that what God did in the Garden of Eden? What have you done? He did it to Cain. What have you done? Talk to me. Tell me what you did. And so imagine having to do that for a lifetime. You know, talk to me about it. And then even worse, if you're not saved, having the threat of condemnation throughout the whole judgment process hanging over your head. And it says in the book of Job, we could not answer him once in a thousand times. We just know we're wrong, we're wrong, we're wrong. And even if you could contrive an answer or an excuse, you know it would not carry any weight whatsoever. So there it is, judgment day. And then the judgment penalty, the wages of sin is death. Some people make much of this death penalty and I think it's a useful tool to say that you are under a death penalty. Someone must pay that death penalty, either you or someone, but God the judge will have that death penalty paid. So the question is, how can a sinful person enter heaven where God allows no sin? Or you could ask another question is, who's going to pay your death penalty? The death penalty is eternal <coughs> condemnation. Yes, go ahead. This, uh, this death Yeah. In fact, I was going through the prison on Monday night. I came upon a guy, and 
I asked him, I said, think about this. I said, once you're born, you're born forever. Mm-hmm. And you will go either to heaven or hell. I mean, but once you're born and when you die, that's not the end of it. You know? mm-hmm. I told him, I said, think about where you want to go and where you want to end up. You know? And I thought I'd talk to you next week. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but the, the point of it is a lot of people don't mm-hmm. think beyond uh, uh, this thing of death doesn't think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once you're born, it's, it's important to get, I think, to me, to get across to the person. Once you're born, you're born forever. That's right. And I think this would be a good point in the outline in which you talk about hell. I mean, realize Jesus talked about it a lot. So you understand what the death penalty is? Jesus taught that it was a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, the book of Revelation says the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those in hell. It's a place of great, a great torment, a place of darkness, a place of exclusion from the presence of God. And all of the good gifts that people enjoyed here on earth, nothing good will be there in hell but everything of God removed except His wrath. And so, I, I, I don't think you can... Can you really make somebody too afraid of hell? I think we all underestimate hell. And so, I think that's a good point to talk about it. All right, so how can we be saved? Yes. A lot of people envision or think about hell. Well, there's going to be a whole lot of us there. I'll have a lot of company. There will be a whole lot of people there. That's but, true. But the thing that it is, in, in Scripture, I take it to mean that, uh, that you, it's going to be like you're going to be there by yourself. In other words, you will be like isolated. You won't be able to look off and see anybody else or whatever or talk to anybody yeah. or anything like that. Yeah, you just have to wonder what kind of fellowship you can have while you're wailing and gnashing your teeth. I mean, what in between whales you're going to say, so how are you? I mean, what, what kind of fellowship can we possibly have? It's a place of... And this is the thing. I said this to CJ last night. You know, if you think about the, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who numbered the stars, named the stars, knows each of them by name, and none of them is... His great power and His mighty strength ensures that all those stars are still there. To think of that kind of a creative, immense, powerful God dedicating all of that toward your eternal destruction, a personal destruction. That's your experience with God forever and ever. I think I don't know how you can overstate that. I, I think everything you, you, you say is an understatement of what it will actually be. You know, people talk about hell being a metaphor. Well, metaphors are taking an experience and reducing it to words. So that means the actual experience is far worse than the words. You see what I'm talking about? So eternal burning or fire and brimstone or lake of sulfur. These are just, I don't know, how, how can we explain how bad it is going to be? And that's why, you know, we, we, we must flee the wrath to come. You've got to flee it. And so I, just, I don't think you can play it up too much, talk about it too much at this point. You really want them hungry for a Savior. You know? And that's, uh, that's turn the page and that's where we're at. Ed, were you going to say something? Okay. All right. Third point, Christ. Remember, God, man, Christ. What are we saying about God? God is the Creator. God is a King. God is a lawgiver. God is a judge. Okay? What are we saying about man? Well, we're created in His image, but we're rebellious against God the King, disobeying His laws, and therefore under His judgment. Well, now we add a fourth title to God, and that is Savior. Not that we've added anything, but there is one fantastic verse that gets all of them in one place. Look at Isaiah 33:22. Somebody read that out loud. It's just a great verse. Isn't that fantastic? All in one place. You couldn't ask for a more efficient verse for this outline, could you? I mean, that's a fantastic verse. Also, I, I find it ironic when you think about the, t- the three aspects of our governmental system. There's the judicial, the legislative, and the executive branch. All three are in this verse. Do you see that? God does it all. Okay? 
He's the Congress, he's the Supreme Court, and he's the President, and far more than any of those. You see that? All three. Uh, yeah, it's Isaiah 33, 22. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. And now the fourth title, Savior. It is He who will save us. Now, my question is, who else but God could save us from God's wrath? Nobody but God. He said, no one can rescue out of my hand. So, God must save us or we will not be saved. That is a clear teaching in the Bible. And so, we must have a Savior and the Savior is Christ. Well, first of all, save from what? Well, Matthew one twenty one tells us. This is the angel speaking to Joseph, speaking of Mary. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's what we need saving from. We need to be saved from sin. We need to be saved from sin completely. That's why I've said again and again to our church, you're not saved until you're totally saved. Now, you're, you can be justified and you can speak in the language of saying, I was saved or when were you saved. That's all right. And the Bible does that. But just realize salvation is a big, long process. And if you're here today, you're not done being saved. Okay? They're still going on. Yes? That's right. Save from what? And I'll tell you what, if you haven't done the work of these first two pages, including the law work and understand who God is, then they will ask that question and, and think there's no answer. Save from what do I need to be saved from? What, what do I need to be saved from? It's very much like an analogy I think I used recently with, I think I was talking to one of you, I'm not sure, I think it was Ed, um, about somebody going to a friend and say, I want you to realize I've been intensely concerned about you, very, very concerned. And I decided that I was, going to, I was going to take a second mortgage on my house so that I could buy you this. It's a little vial with some medicine in it. But what is it? Well, it's a remedy for mad cow disease. And I want you to have it. And it, it was immensely costly, but here you go. Now, what would your friend say to you when you handed him the vial, realizing that you've taken a second mortgage to get the only vial of this medicine there is in the world to hand to them? What are they going to say to you? <laughs> well, thanks, but, you know... <laughs> What in the world? What are you, nuts? You know, why in the world would you mortgage your house to bring me the vial of mad... Now, but what if he's got mad cow disease? Then what? Will he see the, the benefit? I think so. And see, as a whole thing, he doesn't... The part of the blindness that the devil puts over so they don't, we don't realize our condition. And so that's why you've got to do the first two points in God and man so that they understand they need to be saved from something. They need to be saved from sin. And they need to be saved from the wrath to come. They need to be saved from everything that sin does so that they cannot obey the Ten and the Two Commandments. They need to be saved totally. Our bodies need to be saved because we're going to die and we're going to be corrupted in the grave. We just, we're, we just need a Savior. And Jesus is the Savior. That's why Matthew one twenty one. Jesus, uh, you'll give him the name Jesus. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. That's literally what it means. And who else could do it but Yahweh? Alright, well who is Jesus? This is where you must get into the history, the factual history of Jesus. All right. How can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? So you've got to tell them something about Jesus. And don't assume that they know. I'm amazed at how little people know about Jesus these days. These are three things I think it would be good to get across. That He is incarnate or the God-man. You should get across. That He uh, had a miraculous life. You should get across. That He did miracles. And that He was sinless. You should get across. These are three things that you want to get across. His teachings also, I think, could be reasonable to get across, but you know, it's up to you if you want to add a fourth one, get some of his teachings across. 
All right, why do we have to tell them that he's the God-man incarnate? Why is that important? Do they have to believe that in order to be saved? Do they have to believe that he is the God-man incarnate God in order to be saved? Yes. <laughs> so it should be in here, don't you think? So the incarnation of Christ, that he is God in the flesh, should be in a gospel presentation. Yeah, and furthermore, I think it'll make sense when we when we look at um, you know the the substitutionary atonement that we're getting to in a moment. But he must be fully God. He must be fully man. All right. John one one and fourteen probably the best verses for this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory. So those two the juxtaposition of one one and one fourteen tells you who we're talking about. It's Jesus. Yes. Well, first of all, you just tell them. Second of all, you realize in John's Gospel, um, you know, it's all about Jesus. These two verses, I, you know, realize you're the one telling them. Um, Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.